0: King Kincaid Breckenridge on News Talk 770. If you missed today's show, an interesting discussion about all the various legal issues that the Jean Meshi trial has raised. We spoke with uh, Peter Sankoff, law professor at the University of Alberta.
2: We also spoke with Erica Christakis, who has a book called The Importance of Being Little. And it's about, uh, you know, the stuff that little kids know and uh, how playing around is a learning opportunity for them. And then adults get in the way and screw things up. You can listen to uh, Kincaid and Breckenridge uh, on News Talk 770 weekday mornings from 930 to 1230. Hey, welcome back. King am Caden Breckenridge. So I don't know if you listen to uh, our podcast. You should at RoroShow.com. Uh, we're going to cook up another podcast for you after the program today. We'll slip into the sauna and uh, lay one down. Last week on this podcast, we discussed a little bit the Xi'an trial and some of what we were learning about the proceedings of the Giong Gomeshi trial. And there's a couple things that I think a lot of people understand academically going in. One is that, you know, this is not a rape trial. It's a sexual assault trial. We understand that there are um, very, very few uh, cases of sexual assault that occur uh, that are actually brought to trial. Um, And when cases are brought to trial, the conviction rate is uh, particularly low. So, you know, we, we just have this understanding of sexual assault in our court system. And then we look at. The defense strategy in the trial, and trial really seems to be just to discredit the complainant's testimony, the evidence that they present. So there's a, a whole lot of emotional conversation as it pertains to the Xi'an trial. And, and then there's some of us who are you know, on the outside looking in, obviously, and asking these questions about, you know, did the crown let the complainants down and in so doing let any future complainants down? How are we supposed to interpret this turn of events that's happened in Toronto over the past couple of weeks?
0: Right. I mean, you know, in any case, like people who've watched Making a Murderer, which we uh, talked about on a podcast, uh, you see the the defense try to discredit the evidence. The prosecutor or the Crown comes forward. Here's our evidence. We're going to show you why we think this person committed this crime. And so it's up to the uh, defense to say, well, here's why that evidence is wrong. Or here's why that evidence is not reliable. Or here's why that evidence, you know, points in a different direction. And so Gomeshi's lawyers, I think, are doing essentially the same thing, right? They're picking apart the crown's evidence. I think the issue here is that the crown's evidence are these women and that the women are being picked apart and having their credibility questioned uh, has has been certainly an issue of some controversy. Let's bring our guest into this uh,
2: program now. Peter Sankoff is a professor of law at the University of Alberta. Peter, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi. Hi. so, I, you know, one of the questions that presses uh, that's pressing from my, my perspective in this matter is this idea that the Crown has let the complainants and, by extension, you know, many, many more complainants of sexual assault down. Has the Crown failed, in your opinion?
3: It's a tough call. I mean, it's tough to be playing armchair quarterback from uh, many, you know, a long way away. And, um, I mean, what it looks like on the surface, there are aspects of a couple of things going on here. There's no question that some aspects of uh, what went on in questioning of the witnesses was just completely unanticipated and uh, it's, it's clear that the Crown did not drop the ball in the sense that they asked the witnesses to do certain things and the witnesses didn't comply. I mean, that happens in trials all the time and the Crown can't be supervising these witnesses 24-7. So, for example, the, the witnesses were specifically told uh, not to communicate with each other once the trial, you know, once the charges had been laid and w- continued to do that. There's no not much that the crown can do, you know, to prevent that from happening. Um, so that was going to harm the the credibility of the complainants either way. In other contexts, there are some real questions, I think, that need to be asked about the extent to which the Crown prepared for the case um, or the police prepared in building a case and ensuring that all relevant evidence was put before uh, was put in the Crown's hands. There's no question that once this case started, it went downhill very quickly and, and certainly doesn't look good for the Crown. I'm just not prepared to, without more knowledge of what they did to say that they dropped the ball.
0: Yeah, that's an important point. I mean, you know, it, it certainly doesn't look good for the Crown right now, but as a case of... The Crown bungling what they had, or was it always a difficult case to, to prove right from the outset?
3: I think it's a little of both. Um, it's cases like this are always going to be a little bit tricky, but, uh, again, again, without throwing the blame exclusively on the Crown, like the, this, the, a key part of this case, I'm not sure if you mentioned it before I got on, was this issue of being able to use all the counts as what's called similar fact evidence. So that instead of just having one case against Gomeshi, the three cases sort of mutually reinforce each other. and And that was destroyed not by anything the Crown did. As I said, that was destroyed by the witnesses communicating with each other, which the courts are really skeptical about. And they really have an understandable fear that when witnesses speak to each other, they create similarities that might not otherwise exist on the evidence. So I think there was really a combination of factors in play here that really sent things going south.
2: Okay, there's another way to say that. If you can't believe witness two, how can you believe witness three?
3: Well, I guess that's part of the concern. I mean, the way they want to do it is it's it's, it's actually the inverse in the sense that if you believe witness two, it it helps shed some light in witness three. But you're right, to a certain extent, when there is a concern that witness two and three did not produce these stories independently, it's very difficult to be able to draw the inference that the two cases are similar enough that you can use them together to reach a conviction. So what you have now is a really difficult scenario where all you have is essentially one witness on each of the the three counts and that's obviously a really it's not the position you want to be in
0: look i mean you've been following this this uh trial fairly closely uh and i, I think a lot of uh, legal experts and law professors have because it's it's raised a lot of interesting issues beyond just you know the fact that it's uh that it's a high profile defendant here so what has stood out to you in your mind or what has made this case unique or, or fascinating from your perspective
3: Well, there's a multitude of issues. In the broader spectrum, I mean, the case itself has been interesting in the sense that the defense has put on sort of a master clinic in the way in which they cross-examine particular witnesses. I mean, it's just been, you do see things like this happen in other cases, but it's an extreme rarity to essentially find that witnesses, you know, at least once admit to having lied on the stand. That's the kind of thing you generally see in the movies, Mm -hmm. not in the courtroom. But the wider context is also interesting. There's no question that a lot of people are taking advantage of the increased public scrutiny of this case to raise wider questions about sexual assault. And what I think is... I don't know if it's unfortunate, uh, because I understand why it's happening, but what is something we need to be careful about is a lot of the concerns are being raised without context, in that what we're missing sometimes is, are these questions about the Gomeshi case, or are they valid questions about the system more generally, but not applicable to the Gomeshi case, or are they things we shouldn't get into in the first place? And and the discourse has really exploded, um, and has caused some concerns.
2: Okay, can we speak to some of those concerns then? Because I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head there, but the more specifically we can discuss that, I think the, the, the better it is for all of us.
3: Sure. I mean, a lot of what's been going on right now is there are, there are difficulties within the system in prosecuting uh, sexual assault. And that is something that has been raised over and over again. Um, and a lot of the concerns about rape myths invading the courtroom are very real. And we know that because we have the case not long ago, you know, that's now before the Canadian Judicial Council involving Justice Camp, where I think it's acknowledged even by Justice Camp at this stage that, you know, rape myths invaded that courtroom room and were used to acquit an accused who might not have been otherwise acquitted. So I think what's happening is a lot of people are tying up these these thoughts in in, in the abstract and suggesting there are concerns in the way in which we prosecute sexual assault cases. It's, it's wrong the way the witnesses are cross-examined. And when they say that, they're not necessarily tying it to the Gameshi case, but it's obviously linked to the media speculation that's surrounding the Gameshi case. So I think that's something we need to be very careful of. But I mean, let's just say that the general general critique that reform of the criminal justice system is needed um, is one that I strongly share because I believe it is needed. It's something that has been avoided for far too long and not just in the sexual assault context.
2: I'm interested to hear more about those reforms in just a sec, but I just want to fill in a blank. This is something we discussed on our program, the camp uh, case that you you just described. This is where we had a judge uh, tell a complainant to have just lowered her bottom into the basin to avoid the rape from happening. Why didn't you just close your legs? And also something to the effect of a little pain is good. So the judge in this case sort of, you know, uh, I, I don't know what the word is, but it was almost an unforgivable offense as far as the court goes. But outside the court, uh, Peter, we have people holding signs outside the Gameshi trial that include the hashtag, believe all, uh, believe all women or, or believe all victims. And the question comes up that, you know, do witnesses or complainants have this uh, believable until, or, uh, you know, uh, believable until proven unbelievable sort of situation? Like, do we should we treat all people in a court of law as though their complaints are honest and true?
3: well I, again there's a lot of issues being uh, conflated here, and it's really it's really tricky to unpack them as part of the problem. There have been a lot of studies that have suggested that the the believability of witnesses issue arises at multiple stages so the studies that I've seen, especially some that have emerged out of the u s have set, have shown that one of the problems with sexual assault complainants is not the trial stage, it's just getting to the trial stage. It's actually having a, an investigation launched and ensuring that the Crown will take the charges seriously enough to proceed. And one of the reasons that that was demonstrated as a problem was because it was shown that police officers and even Crowns were very skeptical of the possibility of going forward and treated treated these witnesses with great deal of skepticism. So that was at the prosecutorial and investigative stages. And I still think that is something, if it exists in Canada, needs to be you know, very carefully scrutinized so that we ensure that we don't disbelieve complainants for, for spurious reasons when they're coming forward and reporting because we know that too many of them don't report at all. So we need to be careful of that. In the criminal justice system, it's a lot harder once you get to trial to actually draw that presumption. But let's just say that we need to look very carefully at the reasons why we're disbelieving complainants. And perhaps there is some reason to reassess some of the traditional reasons, you know, we have we said we're not going to believe them. And I'm not sure that those necessarily apply with great force in every aspect of the Gameshich case. But I've seen enough evidence across the board to suggest that this is something that's worthy of uh, renewed scrutiny.
0: Well, it's interesting. I, I, it might have actually been you who made this point. I forget where I read it now that, that, you know, if the Crown had just focused on what happened, tell us what happened to you, tell us what he did to you, uh, then maybe they might have mitigated some of the, the, the problems that, that ended up happening for them. Because when you start introducing aspects of, of the, you know, their interactions after the fact and conversations they might have had with the accused after the fact, you open up that window of questioning for the defense, you make it relevant. And in which case, the defense is just you know, going after what you've already introduced, uh, was, was that part of the problem?
3: Yes and no. I think it certainly exacerbated the problem in this case, but I I think the Crown would have had, uh, sorry, I think the defense under current rules would have had the ability to question anyway what made it particularly problematic in this case. And I have always thought from the beginning, the biggest problem that they faced in this case is not the particular questions about contact, and certainly not the idea that the witnesses themselves continue to have contact with Gomeshi. It seems that most people would understand that that is something that sexual complainants do. The the biggest difficulty and the downfall has been that all three to a person essentially said in their direct evidence, no, that didn't happen. No, we didn't have these communications, which just opened them up to uh, incredible, not just inconsistencies, but like at at least two witnesses were confronted with the suggestion that they were lying under oath. And one witness agreed that they had lied to the police. And and so when you get that kind of inconsistency and that kind of level of attack, uh, it's it's very, very hard to rebut. So I guess I agree and disagree. It definitely was worse because of that. But under current rules, I'm not convinced that the, the defense wouldn't have been able to do that otherwise anyway. And I guess the question that we need to consider in future, and it's a very difficult question, is the extent to which we can remove that type of um, discussion from the evidence entirely. Because if it's removed, then the then the defense can't ask questions about it. But that's a very controversial position.
0: Oh, sure. And I mean, the point's been made many times. Uh, you know, just because a, a woman contacts a man afterwards, that doesn't necessarily tell the whole story of the relationship. Abuse victims might have all kinds of reasons why they would still be in contact with, with an abuser, etc. And it's all a valid point. I guess in a court of law, if the Crown is arguing that this case is strengthened by the credibility of that person, isn't it the defense lawyer's obligation to to, to poke holes in that and, and to, to demonstrate, well, maybe this, this credibility is not what the Crown says it is?
3: Absolutely. The question that needs to be asked, you're absolutely right. There's no question that certain aspects of what the defense did in this case is very common to any other case, non-sexual abuse. There's no question. I mean, take, take the point I've raised several times already, communicating between witnesses. That has, That is raised in a variety of contexts. That is not just sexual assault cases. I've seen many cases where it's raised. It's a legitimate point of inquiry. The question that, that it gets a little bit simplistic when we just say, well, the defense has to test credibility, because imagine that I have a case, and I'm the defense lawyer, and I'm just going to cross-examine someone on their credibility at large about anything they've ever done that demonstrates lying. You can imagine that that is a very problematic concept, it's it's way too broad, it goes beyond the scope of what anybody can reasonably be expected to be this perfect saint. The, The question then becomes, well, what are the types of questions that are legitimate that can ground an inquiry into a person's credibility, and how far does that potentially depart from the realm of what is an acceptable inquiry? I mean, we have to remember that 30 to 40 years ago, um, we had a situation in which you could ask a complainant about their prior sexual history for the purpose of demonstrating that they shouldn't be believed, okay. and that has been removed by statute. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we would make other limitations, as long as we really carefully consider whether they're appropriate, and, and that's, the inqu- that's the discussion that I think uh, needs to be had eventually.
0: But I guess, and, and do we need to clarify, because I, I think some lines are getting blurred here, blurred here that... Whatever happened, I mean, these were consensual encounters with these women, at least in the sexual context. I mean, this is not a, a rape case per se, and I think it seems as though it's getting treated like it is.
3: I, I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, it's not a rape case, but it's certainly a sexual assault case. It, it was, uh, I, I don't think that's the problem that the Crown is going to have trouble uh, assuming. It looks like violence. It's violence per se, but it's violence in a sexual context, and, and it amounts to uh, a sexual assault. So it's it's not yeah. really – you're right, it's not a rape case, but it's it's a sexual assault case.
0: Right. But I guess do do these principles that apply to what's happening here apply to a rape case?
3: I think so. I'm not sure how well everything transposes over. I mean, I understand your point that there are some distinctions, and they might not all be applicable. Certainly, I think there have been people talking about a variety of of myths and stereotypes. That might not apply here, I think is what you're getting at. And I think that is possible. I haven't, you know, it's not clear. I haven't read every piece of evidence that talks about the extent to which this is supported in every scenario. But um, I do think a lot of the things that happened in this case are not, Unusual vis-a-vis rape cases or sexual assault cases of any type. It's that that is, in fact, that is what I think is is grounding the critique of the trial more broadly. I just, as I said earlier, wish that it was a little bit more um, careful. I understand right. why people want to discuss sexual assault more broadly, but I'm worried that every time a critique is made, it seems to be connected to Gomeshi, and I just I'm not convinced that Gomeshi has raised all these issues that are being discussed.
2: Yeah, I certainly feel that. And I also feel that the critiques of this trial are critiques of the complainants for not acting enough like victims, when really I think that there might be a critique that they acted in a a different way, but it's it's almost as though there's this burden that if you were in fact the victim of a crime, well, you would have acted more like a victim. Exactly what does that mean? And is that a completely unfair uh, assertion to make?
3: Well, that's been a lot of the discussion, and, uh, you know, obviously, I don't know the extent to which the judge is going to rely on that type of reasoning to make a conclusion. But again, like, as an observer to this case, um, and, and I'm not the judge, obviously, but, like, I understand that those ideas have been raised, but I don't think they've been the central part of the defense case. I, I think in the closing submissions, it was really telling that at several junctures, the defense said things like, we don't object to the idea that complainants, You know, um, meet with their with with their um, you know alleged abusers. But what we object to is the idea that they can lie about it afterwards, repeatedly, both to the police and then to the crown and then to the, the the trial. So I think I think the extent to which that type of reasoning has been relied upon, the perfect victim, it it may be an implicit idea in the trial, but it certainly hasn't been the explicit force. And frankly, I don't think it's the strongest part of the defense case. The, the contact. I think it's it's really the, you know, the litany of inconsistencies. And as I said, it's some, some outright lies as admitted by the witness on the stand. So it, those types of things make it very difficult to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt.
2: Um, Peter, you, you mentioned before uh, reforms in the criminal justice uh, system. What, what do you mean?
3: Well, my big bugaboo is that we've seen a bunch of trials this year that have really commanded a lot of common attention. And the truth of the matter is, They all raise concerns about criminal justice, the way the criminal code is drafted, and the fact that we haven't had any reform of the law of evidence, you know, since I've been alive. And the truth of the matter is, like, the last serious reform of the criminal code took place 60 years ago, which is just its unbelievable, quite frankly, and it's unbelievable that we don't have an ongoing system to try and reform our criminal laws, which are, are, are so important to everybody. Um, the Law Reform Commission was disbanded in the 1980s, and we are the only common law country that does not have an independent body looking at broader systemic issues. So essentially, everything, the reform of criminal law in this country gets left to the Department of Justice, which essentially, it does a good job in what it does, but it's essentially carrying out the will, and I don't want to say the whims, but you know, whatever the politicians wish to do with a particular issue. So what we get is very piecemeal reform, and systemic concerns like this, course, this this case is raising, and frankly, a lot of the other high-profile cases have raised, just get completely ignored. And I think that has to change, and a lot of people are pushing that we need to reconsider the way in which we approach criminal justice in the broader sense in this country, because I just don't think we're doing a good job.
0: All right. Peter, well, we got to leave it there. Great insight. Uh, people can find more at uh, PeterSankoff.com and on Twitter as well, at Peter Sankoff. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Peter Sankoff is a professor of law at the University of Alberta. Some thoughts from him on some of the many issues in this case. Let's take a break. Here we'll come back. Some more thoughts. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right. Welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Uh, you know, someone you know, t- takes some a more kind of extreme view of all of this. If you're on a first date and you try to kiss the other person without their permission, is that sexual assault? I mean, it's the question of when does consent come in? And, and Gomesh was clearly into some kinky things. These women were with him intimately, consensually. But obviously it, the, the allegation here is that he went above and beyond that and did things to them that they didn't consent to. And his argument seemed to be, well, yeah, I bet if they didn't like it, I, I would stop. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I wonder if, you know, there'll, there'll be some clarity on that point. Because, you know, we heard, you know, people who are part of this whole BDSM thing around the time these charges came about and said, yeah, Gomeshi is uh, not representative of us. We're all about consent.
2: Let's get to the calls here. Uh, hi, Steve. Thanks for the phone call.
4: Hi. Um, same, um, okay, I, my heart goes out to the women that are victimized or men that are victimized by other men or however the sexual victimization takes place. But... Um, we need to maybe look at, part of, the, part of the reason that we don't go after these uh, witnesses too hard is because the false accusations of other places, like I have two friends, one got accused of molesting children of his own, and the other one got accused of basically sexually assaulting his, 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 his wife at the time. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is both accusations were totally false, they were both totally proven to be false, and the women skated, like they got absolutely nothing. He went through hell, both of them did. And these women, both of them, just, like, nothing happened to them. Right. Like, there's there's got to be, you know, like, a, like the, the sort of, uh, you know, like an axe hanging over the head of these accusers that if they're, you know, that this... To get to root out the false ones, right? But you, I and think, the false ones, they come to something with a false one. Like they should be like hung. Well, like, yeah. I mean, there's the a difference.
0: Women. There's a difference between someone getting acquitted and a jury not believing testimony. But I, I think in a case like that, I think you know the police and the crown they have to feel pretty convinced that we can go to court and prove that this person perjured right, herself for well, himself.
4: Right, the other side of the coin. If this woman goes to this, to, if, if it's proven that she's a liar, how come they're not prosecuted? Like when they're proven to be liars.
2: Oh, well, you're talking about perjury.
4: That's right. Yeah, that's, that's a
2: criminal offense, and you're prosecuted that's right. for that. And they get nothing. No, well, no, that's not true. They get nothing. If you if, if you perjure, then then you put yourself in peril, and, yeah. and, and you can be sent to jail for that. <laughs> well, so show so me they... an
4: example where a woman that ran a guy through the mill over a sexual uh, accusation of uh, sexually assaulting right. his children, I get. and you show me a woman that took a perjury charge for that and got any kind of punishment.
2: Okay, well, I mean, that's a specific request, Steve, and we've got... It doesn't not, happen. It well, never Steve, happens. hang on a second, because there's a point here that, that we're trying to get to, but but we're getting caught in the muck. So you're right, that, that's that's an issue. I definitely agree with you that that's an issue, but there's a difference between innocent and not guilty. In the case of Gian Gameshi here today, then we're either going to get a guilty or a not guilty, but the judge is not going to say, hey, actually, he's innocent, which is... Just to say that what you say you're accusing him of, he didn't do. They're saying that there's not enough evidence to convict him of what you're accusing him of, and that's why he gets a not guilty verdict. Those are the two verdict opportunities that we have in this country. But to your point about these guys, their lives are ruined. I agree with that. But is that a statement on the accusers who bring it, or the way society looks at people who are acquitted of crimes?
0: Right. I, I you know, I think it becomes uh, a problem if you conclude then okay this person was acquitted therefore all those witnesses lied let's go after all of them because they must have lied and we're going to charge them all with perjury i mean it doesn't and it can't work that way so i think to bring a charge of perjury right i mean the the crown the police they have to have considerable evidence that that there was a a willful intent to do that and yeah i mean the kinds of cases the caller describes where a woman says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick it to that guy, that, that ex-husband of mine. He's terrible. And I'm going to make up a story that he did something awful. and uh, I'm going to send him to jail, and he's innocent. right? If you've got evidence that, that a woman concocted that kind of a plan, absolutely, she should be charged. All right, we're going to uh, pause right
2: now uh, for the news to 1130. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, what we call the preschool paradox. We're getting kids into curriculum and brainier activities uh, earlier and earlier in their lives. Uh, but are we taking away something that's of vital importance to them, which is, you know, just running around and having fun? It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.
0: All right, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Welcome back. A lot of texts still coming in on on the Gomeshi trial. Just quickly, Roger, two quick texts on on that. because Someone texts us say no woman has ever been tried for perjury for making a false sexual assault allegation. Maybe we had a text two minutes later from someone who says my sister-in-law got two weeks in jail for lying about getting raped back in 1996. Uh, so... I, I, maybe it happens more than we realize because, for one thing, most sexual assault cases don't make the news, and if some perjury charges resulted from them, I don't know that that would make the news either. But yeah.
2: anyway. The point is that there is a legal remedy for that claim, right? There's a charge for doing what so many people think that women can just get away scot-free with. It's, it's a difficult conversation to have, but if we come with cool heads and uh, a willingness to to understand the expanse of the playing field, I think we can really get somewhere. But we hold up anecdotes as, as proof positive that it is a certain way. And absolutes don't lead to, uh, uh, don't lead to productivity. So
1: We'll put that right. to
2: bed for now. We'll probably talk about that more in the yeah, next We'll,
0: we'll talk about healthy consensual relationships coming up after 12 o'clock. Uh, therapist and couples counselor Dr. Tisha Morgan will join us uh, afternoon. We've got some interesting issues to get into with her. But Let's talk about kids right now. And an interesting uh, new book out making the case that you know, kids aren't getting what they need. And, you know, we need to let kids be kids, really, and I think we've maybe lost sight of what that is. I
2: think that one of the issues that we have with kids, and and I like this conversation we're about to have uh, with Erica Christakis because I believe it might affirm something that I've been saying for a long time, that kids of various ages are very smart in very different ways, but when we get into adulthood, we just kind of forget that, And, and I think it's important that we all watch the 1980 film Blue Lagoon, starring Brooke Shields and Christopher Atkins, which shows you what happens when you strand kids on a desert island. They can actually get by just fine (laughs) interesting
0: (laughs) well uh, erica Christakis is a lecturer at yale university and is author of the importance of being little erica great to have you with us here. welcome to the program
1: thank you so much so
0: what prompted this book
1: well i'm an educator an early childhood educator and a parent of grown kids and i've been intrigued by what i call the preschool paradox which is this idea that kids are on the one hand so powerful as you're saying so capable, they're hardwired to learn in so many different settings, and yet we're having more and more problems with young kids. We've got um, an epidemic of preschool expulsions, if you can believe it. We've got more and more kids at younger ages being medicated for attention problems. We have lots of anxious, frustrated parents. So I've been really interested in what's going on that accounts for this mismatch where kids are so bright and capable and yet struggle, and I think the answer really is that we're not letting them be little kids. We're sort of losing sight of the importance of being little and we're often mismatched in our expectations. Sometimes we ask too much of little kids. Other times, we kind of insult their intelligence and don't ask enough. So that's where this mismatch comes from and it's really asking young kids to be in an adult-sized world so we need to change some of those expectations
2: okay what do those expectations look like because right now uh, i'm picturing uh mommies and daddies with the best intentions running their four-year-olds through like latin flashcards
1: exactly everyone is anxious and we're all doing our best and you know teachers are doing their best too and they get a really bad rap i think parents and teachers are pretty embattled but here's what it looks like let's let's take a peek into a preschool classroom you know, when you walk into it with adult eyes, you see tons and tons of stuff on the walls and bright primary colors, and you see all of this sort of busy stuff, and it seems really cute, and it seems really child-sized. But often it's really not. We have really rapid transitions. We have really packed schedules. And so that stuff can be quite frustrating and overtaxing for little kids. At the same time, a lot of the curriculum itself can be quite frankly A little bit on the stupid side. You know, we often get kids in a circle and make them track the calendar day after day, week after week, sometimes for months or even years if they're in school for, in preschool for multiple years. And that's one of these activities that I would call a sort of too hard and too easy activity. Meanwhile, the kinds of wonder and inquiry and excitement that children feel about learning is being kind of pushed out of the curriculum as we have more and more rote learning and um, more stress, you know, like you said, the flashcards and all of that stuff. And the scientific evidence is really, really clear that when kids have a lot of long and long extended periods of time to play, to converse with each other, that's where the really strong learning is coming from and the strong language skills.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, you we make kids sit and sit and sit and sit at circle time and sit through this and sit through that, and then when these little kids get restless and stir and can't sit still, it's, well, you know, something's wrong yes. with that kid.
1: Right, exactly. And then, you know, we start giving them medication, and uh, I mean, that's an extreme example, but it's really not so uncommon. Uh, and I think it's sort of this mismatch, as I was saying, that we often don't see the signs of learning that are really hiding in plain sight. You know, if you... Watch a child playing with blocks in a very sort of open-ended way, where they're using uh, blocks to represent something symbolically. They're playing with fantasy. Maybe they're building a fort or a castle or a ramp for a little car to go down. And there's so much learning that's going on there. They're using higher-level language structures than they do when they're sitting at a table doing an assignment, and that's been proven, you know, in multiple studies. Uh, you know, they're doing measurement, they're doing geometry, they're doing physics, they're doing engineering. But oftentimes, as adults, You know we get very fixated on these kind of I call them the Flintstone vitamin you know approach to learning outcomes you know we have these little bite-sized kind of kibble-sized learning outcomes so we as parents and as teachers you know we want our kids to know all the letters of the alphabet at age three and sure it's great if your kid is the one on the block that you know can recite the alphabet but actually it's not really a terribly high-level skill And what we really want is for kids to be talking and listening and developing all kinds of complex cognitive skills. And they're a little bit harder for adults to see sometimes. And so we have to really kind of re-educate ourselves about, well, what what is learning? What does it look like?
2: Yeah, i got a question I'm going to try and sound out here. My thoughts might be a bit abstract, but I feel like uh, if anyone's up for the task, it's you. Um, well, no, but <laughs> I'll like, try. Because I think that, that, you know, I'll say it again, well-meaning parents, right? They'll figure out uh, something they want the kids to learn, and then they'll figure out an exercise or or routine or something that helps them get to this. And in so doing, maybe they don't recognize that to a, a little kid, Like, playing is more than just running around burning off steam so they can be calm for the lesson. Like, playing is that learning opportunity to that kid.
1: That's exactly right. And you know, we have this problem where I think play has kind of an image problem. You know, if you think about opposites, the classic one is all work and no play. And so we have as adults, you know, a very simplistic notion of what play means. And you're really, it's really true, I mean, I hear preschool and kindergarten teachers often saying things like, finish your work and then you can go play. Well, we need to re-educate ourselves to really understand what we're saying when we communicate that kind of a message, because when you're three or four or five or even six or so on, play is an extremely fertile habitat for learning, very complex skills. Now, it's also, it's not only academic skills that are honed by play, it's also some of the, I think they're very unfortunately called non-cognitive skills, which is kind of silly because they're highly cognitive, but the more social and emotional skills like self-regulation and learning how to take turns and all that. So play is really so clearly linked by, um, to, to strong academic and life outcomes. But, you know, as you said, it's, it's sort of easy to fall into this dichotomy. The other problem is that the play habitat that children live in, that they play in, and when I say habitat, I mean kind of this, not just the physical space, but kind of the psychological space to be a child, um, has been eroded. I mean, adults have taken this away from kids, so there's less time to play. And um, I think what's happened is that a lot of kids have the play impulse still in them, very much hardwired. But their play know-how is a little shaky because they haven't mm-hmm. grown up with the kind of play habitat that, well, I don't know how old you guys are, but, you know, I'm in my 50s, and so I remember an era where kids really knew how to play.
2: Oh, yeah, go outside. And that was the directive you got, and then it was basically every stick, every ball
1: right. in the yard. Right. Was talk-
2: I've seen that what you're talking about. I've seen like kids, like five-year-old kids, and you, you set them loose, and they don't know how to play.
1: That's right. And then we get frustrated, and what happens is we think, well, wait a second. Everyone's telling me play is so important, but what's going on? You know, my kid is just whining and wants to turn on the iPad. And so there's sort of this negative feedback loop where because the play habitat Is sort of being eroded, you know, for all the usual reasons—technology and you know adult pressures and et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, so kids are kind of losing that know-how, and I think we have to help them reclaim play as a real um, fuel source for learning. You know, and we and we need to do it in a very gentle way. We can't just get mad at our kids for not knowing. (laughs) You know, if you if you put a kid in a room with, you know, a a bunch of um, cardboard boxes after they've been used to doing really, really scripted kind of. Um, activities and so on, and they look at you like, are you kidding me? You know, I'm supposed to be playing with this? Uh, We have to help them. And there are ways we can help them. You know, one of the most important ways is to listen to kids and cultivate conversation instead of saying to them things like, oh, you drew a nice picture of a house. You know, say, tell me about your drawing. We want to invite them in, sort of Hmm. prompt them to fantasize, to talk about what's on their mind. Those kinds of ways of talking with kids and listening to them open up more natural play. And we also have to tolerate their boredom. You know, help them figure it out. If they, You know, instead of whisking something away because they seem bored, we have to be patient and say, you know, maybe you could try it a different way. Let's, let's see if it would work this way. Um, and that takes patience. You know, we can't just sort of change the rules of the game right away with kids who aren't accustomed to it. But I think we can repair that play habitat. Okay,
0: but you know what's interesting, though, is this disconnect that if the evidence is so compelling about the the importance and value of this, why have policies and practices gone the opposite direction?
1: Well, it's and it's even weirder because you know what, adults are really into play. I mean, if you look at um, a lot of companies now have you know ping pong tables yes. and football, t- you know, so we're all really into the idea of play playfulness for adults. So it's really peculiar. I think there are a couple of things going on. Um, One is simply that it does take, unfortunately, as much as 20 years from the time that studies come out to actually get them into the field. You know, it takes a lot of time. On the other hand, that only explains part of it because we've known for many, many decades that play is very important. I think there are a lot of concerns about closing um, achievement gaps between kids who have more or fewer advantages in life. And so we've gone for some kind of quick fixes that actually, it turns out, are not really working very well. But, you know, people implemented them with good intentions. Um, and I think, again, this sort of play, you know, has this image problem where we just have to, um, you know, we do really need to kind of reclaim it. But I think it's too much to just tell an individual parent, oh, let your kid play. You know, we need to, as a society, really invest in it. And one of the first things we need to do is give kids the time to play, because if you look at schedules in preschool and kindergarten, they're very chopped up, lots of transitions. You know, children just literally are not developing those
2: Play skills that they need. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you that because your book is called The Preschool, uh, or it's not called The Preschool Paradox, but I mean, we're talking about the preschool paradox, not not like the toddler paradox, right? Like we're talking about the institution as opposed to the pupils in it. So this almost seems like it has to be an institutional solution.
1: Well, exactly, but at the same time, also, I really do believe that parents need to embrace this notion that learning happens everywhere, and schooling and learning are actually two really different things. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Twain famously said, I never let <laughs> my schooling get a, get interfere with my education. You know, I think sometimes we really believe that um, what happens at home is not important, and I think for parents of all um, backgrounds, with all economic circumstances, we have power to influence the child's learning environment, because actually the most important learning environment is between the parent and the child, you know, and that, it may sound like a cliché, but it's so true that if you have a strong relationship with your child, you know, your child will, in fact, have many learning opportunities, no matter what your circumstances. So, yes, we do need some structural changes in terms of the way that kids experience institutional care. Um, and, you know, in our society today, I mean, more and more and more kids are in, you know, daycare programs, preschool, whatever. I mean, there are lots of different terms. and um, But a lot of, you know, many kids, the majority of kids at age four are out of the home for some part of the day. So we certainly need to be serious about classroom environments. But I think we also have to kind of re-empower ourselves as parents that, you know, our child is really... Learning all
0: the time. Right.
2: Yeah. Got one minute left here, and I've got a million dollar question for you. But (laughs) so, what do you think is the one thing, the one compelling uh, insecurity or idea that a lot of parents uh, have and and implement, but that might be inhibiting their kids uh, in this respect? And and I'll give you an example. uh, Safety. They're they're really fearful for their kids' safety, so they don't let them engage in certain types of play.
1: Right. I mean, that's a classic one, and in fact, the opposite is true, that to make your kids truly safe, you know, you have to let them take some risks. I mean, I would say one of the biggest sort of misconceptions that's really inhibiting kids' learning is we're, we're misunderstanding language. You know, we, we think that these quick fixes with, like, alphabet awareness and vocabulary lists and all this stuff, that that's somehow going to lead to kind of real academic and life success. And all of the scientific evidence suggests that the really important thing is when kids have playful exploratory based learning with lots and lots of rich conversations with friends and with family that's where the strong learning outcomes come from and there's a lot of good data on that so I would say you know put the drills away stop worrying about that and actually have a real conversation with your child let your child talk t- have your child tell you where he or she is and what she's thinking about that's where the real growth is going to boys
2: Amazing. with Kirk. Amazing,
0: yeah. My well, book is called The Importance of Being Little. Erica, thanks so much for joining us here today. appreciate this.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Have a good
0: day. All right, you too. There you go. Erica Christakis, uh, her book, The Importance of Being Little, it's uh now.
2: We'll uh, take a break right here. That was an awesome conversation. Let it sink in, and uh, we'll read some
4: texts and uh, some more thoughts before we wrap up this hour. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.